0: Hello and welcome to the Miraculous Being series. I'm your host and self-awareness coach Shweta Shivraman and this is a show where we discover, learn and implement lessons from others' life journeys. Others who I believe epitomize miraculous in its truest spirit. Individuals who live life to the fullest, who worked hard on themselves to reach where they are and are passionate in what they do. Today's speaker is Vasudev Murthy. Vasudev is a consultant, aspiring yogi, violinist, author, and an animal rights activist. He's a managing partner at Focal Concepts and the author of eight books. Latest one titled Yoga Sutras Simplified. He's a master facilitator, expert trainer in consulting skills and writing communication, visiting professor of management consulting at IIM Bangalore Institute for Product Leadership. After spending many years in consulting companies globally. Let's jump in as we go in to Vasudev's journey and a little more about Yoga Sutras. Hi Vasudev, thank you so much for making time to be on the show.
1: An absolute pleasure, Shweta. So glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Amazing. So before we kickstart, would you like to share your journey with the audience so that they are up to speed from where we met last week and then we can take it from there?
1: Which journey? I'm not sure. There's so many journeys.
0: (laughs) Your professional journey maybe? And then we come into your uh-huh. author journey.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, professional journey is very boring, but okay. I right, since you insist. <laughs> okay, I'm your uh, your typical, uh, you know, uh, engineer management kind of a guy. I, I studied at a place called Rukhi, and then I went off to the US and spent a good ten years there. I picked up a couple of uh, additional degrees, but for the most part, I was an IT geek like uh, like you know everybody else, I suppose. And then I slowly moved into, uh, I did my MBA and then I moved into management consulting, which was actually a, probably a better choice for me now, uh, now I think about it. Uh, uh, so there I spent some years with, uh, you know, uh, what was then called a big six, which has become a big four now. Uh, and uh, uh, actually there was a big eight, believe it or not, eight and then mm-hmm. six and then four. Anyway, so then I came back to India, uh, did a number of things. And the last long stint, uh, stint was with, with Pro Consulting Services. Uh, where I did a lot of uh, consulting activities, um, uh, where I was head of certain groups, for example, HR, uh, finance, 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 uh, supply chain, and so on. Uh, and I was also in charge of operations and recruitment, MBA recruitment. Now, I was also teaching and I, have, I continue to teach at uh, some MBA schools. Uh, I was teaching at IM Bangladesh, teaching consulting as a subject uh, from 97 to 2014, if I remember. Then I now I teach at the Institute for Product Leadership. I teach business communication and what have you. Uh, over the past 10 years, I have I have my own uh, management consulting firm. So I do a lot of again business communication, proposal writing workshops, strategy workshops, and those kind kinds of things. So that's that's what I do as far as my profession is concerned. Uh, does that answer your question partially?
0: Partially, yes. I'm curious about what is the interesting part now. The interesting part
1: is <laughs> is is all the other stuff that don't put it in resume because you know people people wonder. Uh, and, you know, it's a good thing you ask because I, I do wonder what, what what will I do when I grow up? When I grow up, what will be my, what will I want, what what do I want to be, right? And I think those possibilities are endless. Now, uh, I have been very interested in animal rights. I was actually an animal welfare officer for for some time investigating cruelty and what have you. Okay? But that continues to be a passion. If you, if, you, if you receive a cruelty complaint of any kind, any animal in distress, I hope you'll call me and let me know I can do something about it. That's very important. Uh, then of course uh, i my yoga journey which of course we we'll talk about very seriously you know that that was uh something that really was uh, was, a, was a remarkable thing uh, and it's it's worth talking about and i look back at it uh, it was my dad who actually pushed me in the direction uh, and i you know i, I guess with my dad I had a, a classic relationship he, whatever he said i was opposed to it you know we had our little things but that was a thing that you know i have to give him complete credit that had he not uh, badgered me into going in Joining a, a yoga class in a in a near a house in Janagar. I wouldn't have probably ended up uh, you know enjoying yoga like I do every day, one and a half hours. I I spend a whole lot of time, and then uh, writing this book, which will which will come will come to later. I'm also a violinist, an average violinist, but I love music uh, quite a lot, and I have been doing it doing the violin since I was a, a young child. So that has continued. I learned both Karnatic and, and Hindustani. Uh, I I teach music uh, as in uh, music theory and what what not. Uh, Of late, I suddenly decided I I want to learn the the Murdangam. So I have a lovely thing going right now the past six or seven months where I attend this lovely Murdangam class near my place. I have uh, uh, five other other classmates. Uh, They're all about six or seven years old. And I'm obviously the oldest. I I think it's just fun to learn from them. And I'm very envious that they they pick up stuff really fast and they, they do stuff. And I'm very proud of them, as a matter of fact. Uh, not NBA would not be right. I think I'm just proud of them because they like my like, little, little children. But we have a great time, and I don't. I, I we call each other our first names, so that's that's happening. And of late, I've been uh, you know uh, about I'm about to start my, uh, learning the vina. My, my mother left a legacy behind the vina, uh, which uh, and I play like I play. But I'm I'm now going to learn formally. Probably the next couple of days um, I will be starting my Vena journey as well. So lots of things uh, you know on my plate, and every day is uh, just a wonderful. Day to start something new and and, uh, and, what, and that's 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 I suppose a quick summary of where I am.
0: Amazing! Uh, I can understand why you were saying that this is more interesting than the straight laid-out path of the professional work.
1: But yeah, it's uh, I know whether you're recording something I don't know. But but I'm just saying the Veena part has has really uh, you know got me really going because when I was a small child, uh, Shweta, I uh, you know obviously we're talking about a time pre TV even pre uh, pre everything you know used to come back from my school. I used to study at a place called Central School Malaysia from Kendra Vidyalay. You obviously have you've heard of it, right? I used to walk back home and my mother would be at home with one of my sisters or just by herself. And she'd be playing on the veena or she'd be singing. And I would just, I was a tiny little fellow and I used to sit down and pretend I was a great, uh, you know, one accompanying her. and little box. I would pretend I was playing in Dangam. So it was a very, very lovely memory because, uh, you know, obviously my mother was a great influence. And then i wanted to learn the violin nobody ever forced me nobody said you must learn the violin so that was good because you know it came from within so i i have very good memories of my mother you know uh, the, the role of mothers in in molding i mean I, i'm not i'm not the first person to say anything but it's so so extraordinary what she has done to done for me in influencing me even the way i look at it practically everything sometimes i feel some mother looking at the world not me But she used to take me to all these places for uh, concerts, you know, and it was a great gift and she used to tell me uh, Mm -hmm. One day music will be, you know, your friend and you know, those those words I didn't understand then but I said we uh, get it now. Anyway, let me not uh, get off on a tangent there. Please go ahead. Not
0: at all. No, I think that was, um, I think that's very beautiful. I think I read a line somewhere that said, motherhood is about including someone that is not you. I think it comes very naturally. Ah, lovely. I think it comes very naturally for it, it, mothers it, it, it. and. Uh, beautiful. She had a
1: whole library of, her, she, had, she had a whole li- she had a whole library of books which uh, you know which again legacy from her father, so again going back coming back from school with no TV no internet no nothing right so what you you do you sat and read books you are reading books all the time, and these are very unusual strange books you know which published in the 10, 1910s 1920s 30s where you know it was a different thing uh, the, the, the 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 structure of book the language used everything was very different and you know obviously that had had its own own impact she lived to see one of my books uh, uh, maybe two of my books getting, getting getting published but not not all this of course yeah but continue please
0: yeah, yeah. so good good uh, pass to that question that i was anyway going to post to you about your journey of an author right starting from indian ragas to sherlock holmes to now a book on yoga shast- i mean yoga sutras how did that come about
1: yeah, so it's not that I had this massive strategic plan. Let me not uh, delude myself or delude the user, you know. I think I think it's a good thing if you are a structured person, which I, unfortunately I don't think I am. So if you're a structured person, if you have a plan, fantastic. I want to be a writer in this genre. You know, that's a, that's a very uh, admirable thing. Unfortunately, I'm not like that. Okay. So uh, the music thing, let me start from there since you asked. Right? Obviously, the music was always around in, in my head and whatnot. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it so happened, my first book was actually about animal rights. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a novel in which I had uh, imagined, the, you know, the animal world rebelling against mankind and actually dominating and destroying mankind. I think I see a smile on your face. It sounds like something that, sounds, that could be your dream scenario as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but that's what it was at that point. Uh, and when I wrote that book with a lot of passion and, and, and all that, Uh, it it happened that I sent it to a publisher. The publisher said, not bad, but can you please make these edits? I said, chalo, no problem, I'll do that. But at that time, exactly that time, I happened to be traveling from Chennai to uh, Bangalore on a train and I was reading, uh, you know, a book of compositions by the late uh, Pandit Kumar Gandharva. You know, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to his music. And if you haven't, I would advise you to do so because it is what they call, uh, you know, rebellious music. It is uh, by keeping the sanctity of the... Of, of, the, of the underlying theme of music and what have you. He explored completely new di- dimensions because of the way he was. He did a whole lot of uh, experiments with music and extremely dynamic incorporating uh, folk themes and what have you. So all, all good. And uh, so uh, then I, I was so moved by what I was reading that I was impelled to write this whole uh, two or three, uh, you know, uh, I, actually the, the title presented itself very obviously. What the Rags Told Me. And I, I took that as an input, and I churned out uh, three chapters of imagining this this gentleman with a, with a tanpura meditating. He is meditating, and as he meditates, the the esoteric personifications of these three or four rags come to him and explain their relevance to him at that stage of life. So, for example, if it's just you know loneliness, or he a daughter who's about to leave, and then the rag chandra Chandrakans, which is which fits that you know of, of, of having a young daughter on the on the on the verge of womanhood, for example, or when you lost a loved one and you're grieving by yourself at 3 or 4 in the morning, you know, what do you do? What, what are the questions you ask? What kind of answers can you expect to help you to deal in you know, something so personal? There I had Charu Casey come along and explain, the Rako Charu Kesi explains why its particular structure, the way it says, you know, is what it is. And then, of course, in that in that same theme, if you understand what I'm saying, going to the very end of bhairavi uh, explaining why she's the mother of all drugs, so actually, that, that turned out to be a fair. When I sent the first three or four chapters to uh, uh, to the publisher, they said, you know, Mr. Moti, nobody cares about animal rights. That's a fact. Unfortunately, I think this is true even today. Nobody really cares. And I think that's a real tragedy. But having said that, from a writing perspective, they said that nobody wants to read about it. Uh, and therefore, your music, this, these things that you've jotted down casually have probably got a lot of weight. So that's how that first book came. And then the book took its own, own life and, uh, you know, uh, he, the, the publisher commissioned some wonderful paintings. One of these days I will uh, point you in that direction. Uh, and then the book also got translated into Canada. And as we speak, it will be it will come out as a Hindi translation in about a month and a half, uh, you know, from somebody in Indore. So that is uh, that is as far as that is concerned. But then as, as, as we talked about earlier, I also have this other life as, as, as a professional you know, I, I, uh, to make uh, to make a living, so to say. So then I wrote this book on proposal writing. It's a very dry area, but that was part of what I used to teach as consulting. So then a publisher reached out to me and said, this is a niche area which nobody writes about. Can you write it? So I wrote about a book on, on, on proposal writing. So if there's a need for you to write a proposal, well, that's a book there. Of course, it is a bit out, outmoded now. Nevertheless, it, it had its own uh, place. Then I, I had a collection of 30 short stories that I wrote this book called Sherlock Holmes in Japan which incidentally was the output of uh, of a collective writing process. So if someone's listening to this uh, you know video and feels that you know I'd like to write as well. I think one of the things that happens is to to keep yourself humble and collect a bunch of like-minded people and do what we call you know group well not therapy but group writing right. So let's say I say Shweta you know three of our friends we all sit together and we give each other some kinds of, you know, uh, I don't know, targets. Let's write like 200 words on, let's say, romance or horror, or let's let's do a new murder, you know, whatever it is. So in that process, that group momentum causes, uh, you know, good things to happen. First of all, it keeps you on your toes. It refines your writing. You learn the fine art of critiquing, even though you may say I have no no background in critiquing, which is important actually. So when, in one of those exercises, which we used to do in this large group of about 20 of us from around the world, three Facebook times. So, so then, you know, were, the idea was, can we write in the voice of somebody else? So, for example, if I were to say, Shweta, why don't you write in the, in the voice of, I don't know, let's say, um, you know, uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher, for example, or, 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 or let's say Rishi Sunak or something. Now, uh, you know, it sounds uh, intriguing and it's worth a try. Because you're forced to put yourself into the person's head and try to imagine that this is how I, I look at the world, then we all look at the world differently, clearly. And I've done that in a separate way. I've, I've, I've taken, I actually have four, four pseudonyms. Well, four, four names under which I write one myself, one is this Japanese character, one is this uh, uh, old retired English professor in the middle of Saudi Arabia, and one is a very, very old uh, you know, African American lady in the deep south of, of the United States. So when you, when you say that's how you're going to be, then your words have a different flavor. It's a very good exercise, very good exercise. And then you discover why people like to write under assumed names. It's a very nice thing to do because it gives you a, a freedom, a new stylistic approach. And some backhanded compliments I've also received. I don't know if it's a compliment or they're trying to tell me something. There's some, someone, a couple of wise guys told me that, those guys, that is my my alter egos, or you know, write better than you do. <laughs> so, so the same person, but uh, you know, uh, writing in a different style. And so you, you, I don't know whether to punch the guy or say thank you. You know, whatever it is. Anyway, so Sherlock Holmes in Japan came out like that because I have I, I chose to write as Arthur Conan Doyle, and at that time, because of my past experiences, I had this thing going with Japan. So then the title again presented itself first. I said, how do I connect Japan and Sherlock Holmes? So. I wrote it and a long story short, but uh, you know, uh, Harper Collins picked it up and they found it uh, quite credible uh, and they, they published it. Then they they passed on, they sold the rights of the book to somebody in Portugal, somebody in Japan, somebody in the US. And then it got a life of its own in the sense of translations. And then Sherlock Holmes of Timbuktu came because the US publisher wanted me to write exclusively for them. And then we selected a place called Timbuktu, which, which was a fantastic idea because I had to research and I love research. I think, yes. And I connected, believe it or not, Calicut with, with uh, Timbuktu. Calicut, uh, our Calicut. Yeah, this, there is actually a lot of stuff. Uh, Ibn Battuta and Marco Polo both visited uh, Calicut. So I was able to find that out the fact and I said, how do I connect all of it? And that's where, you know, when you meld a little fact into fiction, you can come up with some very interesting stuff. So that was the that, that, that other book. Then again, back to my profession, I wrote this book on how organizations really work. Which is which was published by Bloomsbury, it's about uh, theory and practice of of mm-hmm. you know how of the way we function. What you learn in MBA school is good, but as you and I know, it's never enough. You know, you need to know the real facts that actually emerge. So whether it's let, let's say corruption or whether it's favoritism or sexual harassment, no MBA course is going to teach you that. Are you you know it's it's something you learn because of that's the world it is, but so then, I, I, I created this book, and I have to say, it was actually again. I thought I had researched it well. Bloomsbury published it; they 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 felt it was solid uh, content. Um, then subsequently, I I, I I wrote this completely insane uh, uh, book, uh, which was a which was a, a parody of the literary world, including myself. Okay, so I made fun of poets, publishers, writers, everybody. I See, the, the of writing absurdity, Shweta, is a very interesting exercise. You know. The more wacky your ideas, you know, if can you translate them into writing and and evoke, uh, you know, something from from the reader. So in this particular case, because of the history of what had happened to me once, I wrote this thing about, uh, you know, uh, literary festivals and and, and and what they are. I, I claim it's a massive conspiracy, uh, you know, between uh, uh, between publishers, samosa makers, and manufacturers of phosphorescent underwear. Now, the you know, is there any logic to it? Obviously, there isn't. And that's that's the point. Why should everything be logical and rational and sophisticated? Why don't we just have some plain, ridiculous, absurd fun? I don't see any reason why not. So that's what happened. Uh, and uh, obviously, you know, I gave the publisher, uh, you know, whatever I to say, if I'm accusing them of such crimes. <laughs> so it went through a couple of, of, well, I won't say rejections, but I think some some were not pleased. But finally, it was published by HarperCollins. Uh, that's the thing. And now coming back to Yoga Sutras. Shall I talk about it now or do you want to? Yeah. Okay. So during the during the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, Jekko reached out to me. Jayko, uh, there there's a gentleman called Mr. Akasha, who's a publisher, who, who's the owner, I suppose, of Jekko. He, he knows me. Rather, we know each other, uh, you know, acquaintances. And he said there was a need for someone to write a book on the Yoga Sutras for the mass market. I mean, the longer conversation but basically that was what it was. The more i thought about it I, I understood the point that many of our fantastic classical texts remain on bookshelves because they have they were not written for the reader Now i'm making a very uh, you know strong statement but but you know, hear me out the point is, is if i'm a very wise person i know a particular subject area yes i will write about it i'll write a book and say this is my wisdom about it and i'll let it be but do we keep the reader in mind when we write the book? I th- think, generally speaking, no. Generally speaking, you, you may say it's the genre. Genre is this, etc. But I hardly have a statue of of a of a, of a re- potential reader in front of me and say, "I am writing for you. How do you How do you assimilate stuff? What are your reading patterns? What language do you prefer? You know, what how has your reading style changed? We never ask those questions. We only obsessed by the writer and his. You know, a a pompous impression about himself, right? So I got the point that the mass market means that you need to be humble enough, uh, yet without making a mockery of whatever you're trying to write about. You know, how do you write in simple ways to convey? And writing in a simple way is very difficult, as you and I know. And it doesn't come easily, it doesn't, and it needs the expert guiding hand of an editor as well. And this is a point which I also want to make that I had a fantastic editor. All praise to her. She was she was a very very fine person, and uh, you know guided me very very well. I'm, I'm eternally grateful to her. But yes, so so we did a couple of rounds. I said, okay, let me try. So I I have to confess that yes, I had done the yoga sutras, but obviously not with the idea of really absorbing it and suddenly you know rewriting it or reinterpreting it and so on. So uh, so I I did a couple of tries, okay, and both failed. Because what I, what I was doing was actually doing the same thing that the other, others have written about. And great people have written about it. Do not mistake anything I'm saying as, as, a, as a negation or saying something negative about great people like Vivekananda and B.K. Sangha, Not at all. They, their wisdom is profound. Everyone who reads my book should also read their books. Honestly. Okay. It's just fabulous stuff. And there's a great American uh, professor, Edwin Bryant. His mm-hmm. book on the is was just wonderful. But they are all very deep. They are very, uh, you know, they assume, probably rightly so, that the reader already has some kind of an inkling about certain kinds of concepts. Which, I mean, I, So the idea is, let's not let's not assume that that's the readership. Let's assume it's a common man, whatever a common man is. I am a common man. So how would I read such a book? I might buy it as I'm just, you know, going through a bookstore, I pick up something. Hey, that sounds cool. Let me read it. Now, if the first few pages don't capture my attention, the book is going to go on the bookshelf and it will remain there as food for cockroaches, as food for termites. It's never going to be read because the uh, a writer has failed to connect with the with the writer with the with the, the reader in the first few pages. How does that connection happen? It is by removing all the things which are which are acting as road bumps. For example, typical a typical classic text will 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 take it as lines as, as shloka by shokta by uh, by shloka or sutra by sutra. Line one, blah, 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 in Devanagari and Sanskrit to be followed by an interpretation as the, as the writer believes. And then move on to line two, which is also Devanagri in Devanagari and Sanskrit and so on. So that, that is the typical movement. Nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a very, very logical way of doing it. And if some people want it that way, fine. But it does not necessarily collectively present the idea that is being represented. So what we did was I said, I'm going to take it as a completely different way. I'm going to write about it as a seeker as a person who's not on a hilltop already looking down and giving advice to people i'm not going to be that person i am going to be collecting all uh you know the central theme of a collection let's say of five or ten or fifteen uh, sutras together what is the point of what are the as a collective saying right and then the entire yoga the yoga sutras actually in my book as you would have seen is in the appendix so it doesn't distract the reader as they're going through that's the first thing Second is trying to give personal examples to show my own imperfection. That's important. You know, if I if I suddenly say I'm Swamiji, I am a Swami, I have opened up my own little thing. You know, I, I'm again unnecessarily putting a distance between me and the reader. So that's not the case anyway. And then connecting. So then graphics. The use of graphics to convey idea is sorely underestimated, not and or rather underappreciated. I, would, I should. That's a better word. You know, graphics get the point. So I said we should do that. And most of our classic texts, except for certain, you know, yantras and all those kinds of things, esoteric uh, diagrams, they don't actually explain an idea through graphics. So I think that was something uh, novel. And I found a very uh, you know, bright uh, young lady in Canada who helped me with that With that project, It helps because a reader wants uh, uh, to break the monotony of reading continuous text. They like white space. They like, uh, you know, shorter paragraphs. They like shorter sentences. This I have learned because I teach business communications also. So getting those points over here is is also also important. I want to also share with you one very important thing. In business communication, uh, the the hot topic that I have taught these consulting firms or consultants has been uh, uh, something called the Barbara Minto's uh, Pyramid Principle. Okay. The Barbara Minto Principle says that, have you heard of it? by the way? I don't know if you have, but if not, let me just uh, share with you. She says, get to the point first. Okay, simple words. But the, it, it, how does it come about? It comes from this way. It comes from the fact that she, she noticed that, you know, cons- uh, when, when consultants presented reports to uh, their clients, they were fact documents and the conclusion, they, they started with the preamble, this is a sad situation. Here's the data, here what, blah, 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 blah. And then finally at the end on page 40 is where the basic result, what the CEO really wanted is there. Now, because of this nature of writing, which is the way all of us have written, learned how to write essays, this is a classical way of reading. But it does not take into account the fact that readers don't have time. And, you know, we, do, we don't have the time to sit and read 40 pages. We wonder what I, what do you want to say? Then let me figure out whether I want to invest that time in reading the rest of your thick report. So she then recommended you start at the end first. What is, what is your point? Your point is that global warming is going to destroy all of us. Fine. That is the point. Now we'll break it down into the reasons why you say, reason one, reason two, reason three. The pyramid is, is opening up and then, you know, give more data, etc., cetera, et cetera, and come to a simple conclusion. Because that's the way you hook the reader. Okay. Now why, the reason I'm telling you all this is because if you look at the yoga sutras of Patanjali, he had discovered this. 2500 years ago, 2000 years ago, so he starts with the definition of yoga in line two, actually, or line one, depending on how you look at it. He doesn't wait for the 195, uh, you know, periods, sutra to say, okay, now I hope you guys have got it. And this is what uh, yoga is all about. He doesn't do that because he wants to get it first, then he expands it along this way. So to me, this master communicator had figured out everything. This is how to make it an interesting hook to people. In our classic management uh, lingo which i'm sure both of us share like i said right so this is the executive summary okay then some details the structure methodology or whatever you want to call that's the second one the sadhana pada then risks and uh, you know uh, mitigation or things to watch out for that's the that's the uh, vibhuti pada which is a very interesting and then finally kind of a a wrapping up summary for for the advanced freedom which is which is the uh, you know so what I'm trying to say is the structuring was so wonderful that, uh, you know, you were, I was lost in admiration. The guy is a master communicator, the greatest intellectual. He has defined, uh, he, he it's been a definitive narration or, or, or a kind of foundational principle of Indian civilization, whether we like it or not. As the greatest export, soft export, hard export from India. Right? That's why we get so much of respect. So. He had figured things out, you know, and uh, so that that I hope I hope I've summarized everything here. But that's what I did. So I just put 10, 10 to fifteen sutras together. Used graphics Used used this thing of what are what is my takeaway in management language. Again, uh, Shweta says both both of us are up there. What's the takeaway from this meeting? You know, and then we say one, two, three, and that's what what we have here as well. So I'm I'm saying for for the reader, I have three takeaways per chapter, so that they feel that okay. So this is what this is all, all about, right? I have eight chapters of each of them, three points or 24 points. So if you go through it as an easy read, looking at, you know, how I, I, as the writer fumbled and, and, you know, mess, mess things up and, and found a way found something beautiful and try to bring analogies, references to music. Hopefully I would have, um, you know, uh, gotten my point across. Does this help? a long long answer my
0: goodness not at all absolutely loved hearing it and (laughs) I think it's a mammoth task right to simplify something as uh, profound as the yoga sutras and something that's been talked about right like so many commentators after commentators but uh, I love how you approach keeping the reader at the center and saying what is it that they need and you know how can you simplify it from their standpoint and Obviously, if they want to delve deeper, there are a million other commentators that absolutely, absolutely. can always keep going back to, but at least this gives them the essence. And uh, what I really appreciated was the very conversational language, right? Like it was almost like, I, you know, it was that like talking so. to you, right? As soon as I picked up the book, uh, it was almost like, a, you know, we were sitting and have a coffee co- coffee table conversation because that was how simple it is to read. And uh, I think, yeah, like you said, I think simplifying is much difficult task. So kudos to you for having managed that. And, very uh, kind
1: of you. But it wasn't easy, of course. Now it's there. I, in, I just want add a passing thing.
0: Yeah. Many
1: places where I stumbled or or froze. Hmm. Why did I freeze? Because some of the concepts are indeed very very difficult very new to me, and very difficult to actually absorb. Luckily, I had this uh, fantastic person to to uh, to lean on,
0: hmm. uh,
1: Acharya Bal ba, Yogi in, in Pondicherry. So he was my guide in those difficult times. To to, to uh, you know, and I. I, I accepted. it. It's a fact. He, he's great, 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 He himself has written interp- the uh, interpretation. So, yeah, it's not easy. And then again, for example, the concept of time, you know, breaking completely all our notions of what time is all about. And, you know, it's so difficult. For example, if I were to say, Shweta, tell me, what are the boundaries of space? Yeah. I'm just giving you an example of that, right? That's a, that's a question our, our brain is not currently wired to. to we can't accept, we can't understand. If I ask you, can you can you trace the beginning of time and the end of time? I don't think you can. I, I certainly can't. Right? So some profound concepts, we are just not capable at our end of understanding. But the way he defines time as not even this, as something else. Claiming there's no such thing as time in the sense that you and I think about. Now, well, that's certainly, you know, a googly that, you know, you don't know what to do about. It. <laughs> and then by the time I figured it out and tried my best to write about it, you know, it, it took some, some doing. Yeah,
0: anyway, please continue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I really appreciate it. And it's such a, uh, I don't know, it's a profound way of simplifying what is very, very deep. And, uh, uh, you know, I know my answer to it, but I would love to hear from you, right? I think Yoga Sutras were written, what, centuries ago. Uh, and, you know, a lot of us who've read it know that it's a timeless text. But uh, how do you see the relevance of the Yoga Sutras in modern times?
1: Well, uh it's not that it was written only for those times. And we, in fact, we just had a, a little discussion on the concept of time itself just a few seconds ago, right? Uh, if And what what does he say, yoga? Yoga, he says, is the stilling of the mind. Now that's very, very, you know, I'm not the first person to be completely, you know, taken aback by that point. Stilling of the mind. Don't think. Keep a blank mind. It's practically impossible. And in fact, most of us like to say, oh, I'm, I'm such a thinker, my mind is always running around. We think it's a great compliment to ourselves, but actually it's not, right? We, have, we live in a time of, of constant chaos. We revel in it. Our entire life from beginning to end is about thoughts, relationships, you know, success, failures. And our mind seems to be, it's, it is, that's, that's what it is. But our ability to, to actually keep things in perspective Uh, I have this dramatic statement I make, you know, I I pretend once in a while to be a great philosopher, you know, Uh, it's it's, it's a a fraud thing that I do, (laughs) okay, so I tell people, you know, life is a blink of light between two voids, sounds cool, right, sounds wonderful, so so the, the thing is, uh, you know, he explains to us, uh, you know, that we there is we have come from somewhere, we are going somewhere else and the whole business of reincarnation, karma, etc. are very well explained. Now, given today's times where, as it is, we can't, we can't focus on any subject for even four, four and a half minutes. Probably even now while you're talking to me and I'm talking to you, even though we're trying to have a very focused conversation, I would not be surprised if along the way and with no fault of yours or mine, our thoughts have actually gone in some other direction thinking about you know, you were talking about the guy who's upstairs drilling, and I'm thinking about some dog of mine who's. So, it, it, we can't help it. We have these parallel thoughts happening, and given the fact that today we are assaulted by, by digital information like like crazy, right? We it, it is really difficult. So for and, and then everyone's now a mental health expert, as you're aware, right? And this is this is a problem because. Without intending to, people are actually realizing that people are breaking down, and that COVID business, you know, brought everything to. to, to people suddenly started realizing the, the the frailty of life, the short period of what constitutes life, where everyone became getting into organic farming, or they started going to the Himalayas to discover themselves. So all that started happening. People actually want to find out, you know, why? Why am I? What am I doing? Why do I need to have a corporate, you know, heart attack to to define my define success? I don't need to do that. So I think people actually want help. And therefore, when this book, you know, when I say it's for the mass market, there's nothing wrong with it. It's supposed, it can possibly help you. Why am I here? The answer is there. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I repeatedly making the same blunders? Right. So rather than having a complex Western interpretation of what this is all about, now you have a more, uh, you know, index, so to say, uh, a reference to go back to and say, really, now that makes sense. There's something that I have done. Which is why I'm doing what I'm doing and I can seek, find ways to stop doing my traditional knee-jerk, you know, responses to situations. So, for example, anger anger management. Now, all of us keep on blabbering about emotional intelligence, as you know, right? We say emotional intelligence. We understand. It is about understand figuring out what am I feeling right now. That's the first step. Second step is to do something about it, right? Well, that's the thing. That's, he talks about all this. He doesn't call it emotional intelligence, but it is exactly what he's talking about. So I am saying that in today's world, it is even more relevant and actually even more obvious than what it might have been then. We want, like you, looked, when we were talking earlier, I was telling you about my multiple interests in everything. It might look interesting, but the fact of the matter is, I am also a victim of what I was just saying. My, I want to seem to want for my mind to be constantly stimulated, even though I am trying my best. Right? I do my yoga of one and a half hours diligently day after day without a break. No matter, in fact, when I don't feel like doing yoga. That's exactly when I do yoga as a kind of a challenge to myself. So uh, it is a constant battle. It's a constant struggle. Some days you do achieve those microseconds of complete peace and some days you don't. So I think somehow the yoga sutras uh, were written and they're for you know, people like us who are constantly comparing ourselves with others who always define our success with reference to somebody else, somebody is making more money, somebody got a brilliant title. Somebody's doing this. So this whole bit, and therefore, whenever we, whenever we experience that, we must stop and think that it's my ego talking, right? And even that small realization can have a perfectly calming, uh, you know, uh, uh, impact on us. So yes, the eight steps in the, in the in the in the in the of of yoga make perfect sense today, and I'm I'm happy to say that you know I think a lot of people are actually. Searching for it. People do approach me. I don't think I'm a yoga teacher in the conventional sense. So I don't teach. But I know others who do and they're doing a pretty good job and hats off to them. They're, they're talking about the whole nine yards. Nine yards other eight, eight, eight eight limbs. So people are interested in that. So it's still relevant. Bottom line is still relevant for the reasons I mentioned.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think, yeah, today there is at least more awareness that yoga is more than asana, right? And that's something even I didn't know two years ago. I, that, that's what I remember it telling really, when, uh, when someone in yeah. asked me saying that, uh, do you practice yoga? And I said, uh, I don't do asanas every day, but I meditate. And the guy just laughed. And he's like, why is meditation not part of yoga? Right? Because our streamlined understanding yeah, yeah. was that only asanas is yoga, right? So if you don't get on the mat, is it really yoga so i think now that awareness is there that there is more than asana and you know there is all of these angas that you can actually practice and benefit from and uh, i love what you said about uh, you know this just the awareness that the ego is in action can be a great starting point, right? And uh, I thought we can go into the whole aspect of ego, right? I think all of us uh, go into that whole sense of asmita, I, me, myself. And I think it starts from a very young age, right? Uh, I often wonder when that whole it does, it does. sense of self actually formed, but we have that notion of ourself and keep preserving that sense of self from a very young age. So curious to hear, you know, um, I just read your story on egoism in the book as well, but uh, would love to hear you share. You know, uh, obviously the ego has a role to play, but where do we draw that line, and how do we live in the world but not of the world? Uh?
1: Look, I, I think I think it's 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 a it's a really an incredible incredible battle. And let me not simplify it by saying that you know I can give you a one minute discourse and your ego will be destroyed. It's not going to happen. In fact, though, of course, this is for the mass market. I just want to make a point that. I don't think this book should be read by very, very young people Yoga Sutras. I'm talking about, let's say, till they're about 18 or 19 years. The reason I say that is because they have to experience life. It's not fair on us, our old adults to impose our, you know, exalted opinions about um, younger people who are just experiencing and enjoying life right now, right? Yes, it is. they are also indeed playing out the karmic thing from pre-preval. people. It is a fact, right? And they are the sense of self, I am so and so, I am this person, you know, all, all that stuff is it actually it's there. I can't tell a five-year-old child or a 15-year-old uh, person, you know, uh, you know, don't think of your ego. I mean, they're not interested in these kinds of things. It's, it's just, just not fair. And everything we do in life, uh, you know, seems to be always a, a, a constant thing about coming first, getting a job. It's about I, 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 I. So when you're inundated with these zillions and zillions of complex, you know, stimulants to, to, to caress and nurture and fertilize your ego. How are you going to pull yourself out of that quicksand and suddenly say, I you know off with me. I think it's really, very difficult Shweta. I don't, I really don't know. I, mean, I also can't say that I'm away for, out from it once in a while you do it and you know, well, easy tests Okay, easy tests. You see someone in distress. Go and help that person and then don't talk about it. Don't talk about the fact that I help somebody in distress. And that is why from helping animals, I, I really want to come out animals. Okay? Because we greatly pride ourselves as the apex of creation. And I have written in a book or so, I don't feel that's the case at all. I think it's, we probably, I mean, whatever we have, whether it's jealousy or the kind of insecurities we have. Animals are actually about that. And right? I don't think I'm making a frivolous point here. I'm saying today they, they have reached a sense of profound sense of, you know, they, they live for, for now. And so they're probably more evolved in that sense. What I'm trying to say is, therefore, helping a person who cannot even say thanks. And then not talking about, it, not advertising about it. No, specific things you can do to control the impulse to reflect on yourself and be, you know, feel warm about how wonderful and incredible and sensational I am we have to make those those steps but i'll tell you for every two steps we, we we take in that direction and actually achieve something we probably come back one or two or even three steps back you know it's really a, a complex battle which is why which is, which is why the whole understanding of the sequencing of, this, of the of the yoga sutras is actually very very important because starting from the dyama, which you know external behavior uh, niyama to the rules we impose on ourselves of how we should be Non coveting, you know, non all the stuff. So these are that's the first two steps. So your mind is already now started, you know, um, becoming mellow. Then you're looking after your body because the ultimate objective is what is you talked about meditation, uh, which will come much later. So that's that's the next obvious step. The third is the most subtle thing of breath management, right? I'm realizing my body is actually fundamentally body and its experiences are fundamentally useless. Done. So that's breathing, you look at it. Then comes that bridge, Pratyahara bridge, which is actually to some extent the the thing that seems to define the identity, you know, the the, how I smell, how I listen. Again, all those five things are feeding myself of sense, a sense of self rather, right? I am listening, I am hearing, I am tasting. So that's why Pratyahara is a withdrawal. How do you take them out of commission so that you're not, you know, involved with the outer world? Very profound thoughts, very, very profound thoughts. So even navigating those five, uh, you know, uh, uh, angas repeatedly and failing again and again, I'm afraid that's that's just got to be done. Then at certain points, yes, you move into dharana, which is, you know, uh, uh, interrupted, you know, concentration and and dhyana, which is absorption and samadhi, which is absorption. That can happen. But as I have seen in in, in my own asana practice, this is a, this is not necessarily only linear. It goes back and forth. Now, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Uh, in, in, in asana practice, okay, there are some which call for balance. And uh, for me, the the, the the shishasana thing is absolutely no problem. Oddly enough, the problem I have is with the single, single leg, uh, you know, balance. Okay. Uh, so, there are a number of things you can do, you know. So, shasana is an example. And there are some others as well. I have discovered, and not a great discovery, you know, is that if your mind is actually churning and processing some stuff which you haven't resolved your sense of balance is shaking you can't you, you actually fall off and can hurt yourself but if you actually for a long long time okay so clearly these things are are, are indeed uh, you know linked and that's when this whole business of I am nobody, I'm just part of the universe, I'm just, you know, insignificant part. You can you can humbly accept those things and not feel bad about it. But having said that, I'll say that those those moments are far and far few in between. You know, they're very, it doesn't happen very often because there's always, you know, some stimulant to the ego just coming out around the corner. You know, so anyway, it, it, it's it's a battle, but it's it's a, it's a battle worth fighting.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that honestly. I think it's always a struggle. And uh, the question that came to me was you know, it's it's a hard path and it's a long path, right? Because we need to keep unlearning again and again and again. Um, how does one keep on the path, right? How does one really stay on the path?
1: Yeah. So, uh, in, in this, one of the things in the, the Yoga Sutra, and I can't remember which part it is, I think somewhere in the first, uh, maybe 35 or 36 or the first uh, Samadhi Pada. He just says that this is a matter of, you know, repeated practice, okay? In the sense of it can be intense, it can be moderate, or it can be slow. Now, this particular personal discipline actually yields dividends. And I said this a few minutes ago. I said by insisting that you have to get on that mat. I'm just talking about asanas for now, but the point is uh, across the board. By insisting that you have to get on the mat and spend one hour every day, that personal discipline does help. It puts things in perspective. Then, when I go into the yama niyama etc., I do indeed, uh, you know, uh, feel the need to improve in certain areas, and not only certain areas. I mean, I have a whole lot of things to improve on. But there's a great acknowledgement that you know I'm really imperfect. You know, I need to do something about it. It it really you know uh, humbles you. It, it just just destroys your ego at least erodes it to some extent. So I think unfortunately, the answer is not about reading books necessarily, but it's about relentless practicing anything you do for that matter. Now, take, take an example of even the violin or uh, let's say singing or or uh, let's say playing the veena, which I'm trying to do now. You know, in my experience, and I, okay, I said, nobody knows much about me as a musician and I'm just an average person. But having said that, all of us, will go through certain batches where our musicality is very good. And we acknowledge it ourselves and we feel proud of it. Again, it's the ego. Now, having said that, and I'm assuming you have a, a, you know some knowledge of music, if you sometimes can hold just one note alone without any melody, that peace and that kind of beautiful happiness that you get from it uh, where the ego is ego's not there. It's not about you. You have somehow attained this fabulous, you know, connection with the universe. Even if it's momentary, even if it's three seconds or four seconds, tatsa, that vibration of that tanpura When it clicks and you're with it, your voice is with it, you know, everything is explained. So I'm unfortunately, I think the answer is for any, everything, whichever type of yoga you're trying to do, relentless practice for years will yield that momentary, profound flash of of beauty, which will justify all those years of, of practice.
0: Beautifully said and I remember what you said earlier, right, that when you, you know, feeling a more resistance, you have to doubly ensure that you get on the mat, right. And yeah. uh, I think this goes against the very um, fundamental principle of today's uh, generation of instant gratification, right? Because uh, you may or may not get some momentary peace and when or how you do not know, but you have to keep the relentless practice on. So I think it's a very uh, different way for us to function, uh, to really be patient whether or not we see results. Uh, it's a yeah, hard game. Yeah.
1: So, so again, if, if the idea of doing the yoga practices to get results, that's again a self-defeating, uh, that actually doesn't make any sense. But you know, again, I'm. So, I don't want to sound like a wise guy. I actually am not. Okay? Not a not a wise guy. These things emerge over time, and getting repeatedly getting beaten up in life. That's when you know you 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 these things suddenly start making like the cobwebs start getting thin. That's when you realize this is actually probably what what it's about. But till then, it's still is an endless fertilizing of of your ego. sadly yeah. enough.
0: Yeah, true. Very true. I mean, that is a form of asmita, right? Uh, it's amazing how it keeps coming. Like just when you think that you have a grip on your ego, I think it comes in a even uh, more camouflaged, subtle way, and you don't even recognize how it has caught you in its web.
1: And and, and in fact, in in the in the in the vibhuti Pada, uh, he talks about this. He says that you know, uh, advanced yogi who has mastered all these things or thinks he has mastered it will achieve great powers of time travel, of of understanding somebody's karmic past, of of walking on water. You know, he mentions. A lot of what is, uh, you know, I guess magic, you can call it, I and mean, whatever you want to call it. And he says that's exactly the point where, uh, you know, a yogi is likely to get distracted because he feels, oh, wow, I'm such a cool guy, you know. And that's when he gets overwhelmed by all these powers he has, and he, he just falls out of that whole thing. It's, yeah. it's a butter churn example, which, you know, when you when you do butter, when you churn butter, the, the nice tasty stuff sticks to the edges of the vessel. Of the but the uh, most, uh, you know, uh, unappetizing or not very interesting stuff is that, that what they call the way, right, Is left the liquid. That's the real deal. This is the distraction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very interesting analogy. Yeah. We need to keep the eye on the ball uh, instead of getting distracted. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And I think... Um... Uh, as we start talking about this, right? Uh, I think one of the very beautiful lines that you wrote, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, it was like almost poetry in prose, where you said that uh, sorrow is disguised as uh, transient happiness. Uh, I think that's such a powerful, powerful statement. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you know, the many ways we trap, get trapped under that transient happiness. Yes, uh, 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 our
1: our our job as we're trained from the very beginning is to seek happiness. I don't think there's anything wrong with businesses. I, I won't say, you know, why are you being happy? Why are you, you actually unhappy? I wouldn't say that to someone. I wouldn't do that. The, 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 the point that, you know, uh, he's saying is that when you experience that form of happiness, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, somebody you, you like or, or, or something you ate, then the mind craves for a repetition of that experience, right? And when it is finally found that you can't have that experience again, then sorrow comes along and it hits you really badly. That is at least, that is the actual point, right? So if you recognize this, that this is all, you know, intended to mislead you and my, my friend sooner or later, you're not going to have the pizza or that person you, you, you know, you crave for, whatever it is. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's not, it's not going to happen or whatever it is. That's when it really hits you. So Again, I don't think I would well, I would say this to anybody and say you know you think you're happy but actually you are happy. <laughs> I wouldn't do that but I think that the, that's the point he's actually actually made there and it's, it's unfortunately a very um, you know crushing thought, sad thought, but it's true, isn't it? I mean I don't know what else to say but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that a child should not experience happiness. I wouldn't say neither of us should have it's fine. But as, at, at the, at the, if you're able to also develop the capacity to understand that this is, you know, don't don't get carried away. This happiness, well, then we can manage quite okay. Then, yeah, we're trapped in this cycle of repeated actions. We bring those actions to, again and again and again. So it's like a circle, right? Which I which I've talked about, which he's talked about, which I, I've tried to. interpret.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very true. Very true. Um, I'm drawing parallels with the Bhagavad Gita also in chapter three, where uh, we go into that, right, that there is a desire and then desire, if it gets obstructed, we get angry and that anger leads to, you know, wrath and then we get caught in that cycle and uh, it's hard to get out of it. And yeah, I guess creating that distance between that desire and again, that sense of self, right, because a lot of times we kind of merge that sense of accomplishment to that sense of self that we are worthy only if we get that promotion or we drive that BMW or whatever it is, right, that we desire and uh, we get caught in that same trap. Yeah.
1: Well, if you look at it these days, the hot news that you and I am sure are reading is about the UPSC results, right? Everything you turn to is about, you know, so-and-so on this uh, village did this and now we got 78th rank. So there are all these success stories which are, which are uh, you know, guiding us in that direction that I also want to be like that person, you know. So, yeah, I want to be as as happy as that person seems to be. So, yeah, unfortunately, we are trapped in that uh, view, as they call it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, this brings me to that interesting part, uh, which you also mentioned in the book, right, about you being a management consultant, uh, mining and dining, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, walking the path of yoga and suddenly moving to austerity and minimalism and, you know, tapas, as we call it in our journey. So, I'm just curious, how was that journey for you and... If someone is still caught in that worldly race, uh, where would you say they start?
1: Okay, so you know, this is a very, very profound question. I know you smiled and asked that question. Uh, uh, but I want to tell you that, you know, uh, yes, initially, it's like a reaffirmation of what a cool guy I am. And I want to, you know, do these things to again and again remind myself of how cool I am. That's one way of looking at it. But if indeed you have been fortunate enough, I guess I would say I, I was fortunate enough to somehow encounter the Yoga Sutras and bring myself crashing down on the world, on on, on the earth. Another way to look at it is that it's a form of duty. Duty. Now I, I'll define it without trying to, uh, you know, uh, appear uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm talking nonsense. There are two two ways of appearing One is duty to those who you know uh, who depend on you. Whether they like it or not, I mean, whether they are uh, spiritually out there or not or whatever, but there are people who may be dependent on you. And therefore, uh, you know, I cannot engage in a spiritual conversation with them and tell them not to be. So that would be very cruel to do so. That that is really not fair. That's one way. The second second thing to do, which I think I needed a couple of friends to tell me this is, you know. So for example, and I, before I talk about management consulting, I'll talk about music and I'll, I'll, I'll correct it. Here. So, you know, uh, like I said, I was very fortunate to be given music or some knowledge of music by some great people. It is my fortune. It is not that I was such a cool guy. I am very aware at this moment that chance brought me to their feet. They gave me this knowledge. Okay. Without that knowledge, I am actually nobody. Now, having said that, what happened during the COVID period was one of my friends said, uh, you know, uh, look, we all are sitting and wasting our time. Why don't you just teach, teach us uh, some music? And I had never actually taught vocal music before. I'm a violinist. At the most, I might teach the violin and even that is a difficult thing to do because many people don't have the patience to learn the violin. But be that as it may somebody said, why don't you teach us, uh, uh, you know, uh, basics of music? And I've never done that ever. I said, let me give it a shot. So I started teaching and uh, uh, well, word spread that, you know, this is guy, crazy fellow in, in Bangalore, he will teach music for nothing. I was not, I was not willing to teach charge. So I started teaching. I had 20, 25 people in no time at all. I spent all my time, uh, you know, uh, teaching. Uh, And then, so that was one. Going back to this business of management consulting itself. uh, In both the cases, you may possess some knowledge. Okay. And the, the idea then is, don't keep it to yourself. Give it away. Now. Now, give it away might be does it mean free? Now I used to think free, and I think that is also a destructive thing because unfortunately uh, the reality is, and even in our ancient system they say you can't take take it free. You have to give guru dakshina. That's how they they, they called it. You know. So uh, so the question is, if I happen to be fortunate enough to know something because of either because, because of my own idea or I somehow read about it and became an expert about it, you know, then is it not my duty to pass on that knowledge of whatever this music or concepts or to somebody. That's how I justify it. Okay. Uh, One point of view of duty. The other of of giving away whatever you may know, because ultimately you're not going to take it with you. So the more you jettison in whichever form, formal, informal, whether it's monetized, non-monetized, give it away. But again, if you're hung up with with the monetizing part, for its own reasons, then again you are in trouble. But I think, frankly, uh, I've made some modest progress in that direction. I'm able to somehow. Uh, I'm managing. Let's put it that way.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I think uh, I want to move into that question about uh, you know I've seen many of your articles written where you talk about how uh, leadership can be enhanced. Through, uh, you know, just the knowledge of yoga and using some principles, or being that yogi as a leader as well. And I'm curious about your thoughts. Uh, how do the two merge, and how can we really be that yogi leader or leader yogi? However, you'd like to phrase it.
1: Yeah, sure. Good. Uh, thanks for thanks for reading the article and for the question. Now, again, most most uh, you know highly driven individuals who. Either call themselves leaders or aspire to be leaders or, or what have you, you know, live fast track lives. And they have these moments of, you know, the step back and say, what is life all about? And you know, 27 steps to leadership and uh, what what have you. So earlier I used to experiment during my own leadership workshops that I used to do. I used to have these yogasana sessions as a as an option. I used to you know give it an option that if you want to come early in the morning tomorrow so typically only 10 percent of participants or 20 percent would show up and we would go through the mechanics of, of doing that and trying to do something so that was then right uh, now uh, then over you know, the past uh, number of years there's also been a great appreciation for the fact that very very young people tasting success at very young ages suddenly dropped dead I think you know quite a number of cases and those people I, I mean I used to know when I was at uh, different place 30 year old boy who just had a heart attack and i think you also probably know several such, such cases so i think uh, generally speaking though people love being successful and uh, you know all that is true, but there's a, a, an understanding and appreciation we need to look out look after ourselves so talking to them about keeping your body fit is easy they get it right and uh, of course most most people 95 or 99 percent of people are actually very very unfit they are prematurely aged and they know it. They're stiff. They can't do anything. So that conversation is easy to have in the sense people understand it. Now the larger question of which you had also alluded to, the larger issues of the ego and, and all that, uh, you know, uh, yama, niyama, those are also something that people are understanding. That, you know, uh, I need to detach myself a little bit from, from whatever is happening. And the whole business of I need to detach myself from the results. Very, very, very difficult. I mean, Again, by definition, a leader is profoundly aware of his or her intelligence, knows that they are highly driven persons who get results. Yet, you're asking that same person to be detached from that and, you know, uh, from the end result and only do your duty. This is the old Bhagavad Gita kind of principle, nothing new that I'm, I'm saying. All I'm trying to say is today, I think people are are willing to listen to these kinds of things, uh, you know. I mentioned to you the other day there was, there's this uh, uh, yoga school uh, academy near Mumbai. You and I know what I'm talking about. So they have they want to actually uh, actually integrate it in a, in a specific way. It's not that you do the leadership principles and then suddenly you say, okay, let's go and do yoga. No, we are going to be both, and we're going to say that these yogic the principles of yoga of managing your breath. For example, if you are upset, notice that the first thing that is affected is your breath. How do you control your pulse? How do you restrain yourself? How do you stop your response to a situation? That stuff, if you can cultivate that discipline, you really don't go places. And people notice it. People don't want to be near a hyper person who has no control over his tongue and just says whatever the heck they feel like because they're supposed to be leadership. A person who's quiet and thoughtful and tries his best or her best to look at both sides and gives space and actually gets that without much effort, right? As a, what I'm trying to tell you is I think the time has come now and people do appreciate it that, that the application of yogic principles can lead to a higher quality of leadership, the way you conduct yourself the glow that you have on your face, the you have probably some fundamental realizations that others lack. Management of your breath, you're not always in a hyper mode, screaming, shouting, but you're, you're balanced, you're, you speak well with thought, with care, with compassion. I do believe that now a lot of Indian business schools are actually offering, uh, you know, these these things in, in some manner, in some manner. May not be the application of Patanjali's yoga sutras completely, you know, not necessarily, but I think there is a realization that uh, the, uh, Indian management, can have its own well-defined, you know, difference because, you know, while we were doing MBA stuff, we said American management, Japanese management, European management, but Indian management, science and systems are also equally profound. And I think, uh, they, they can dip into this, uh, limitless reservoir of knowledge and be actually effective is what I believe.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think uh, there is a lot more revival of Eastern wisdom in terms of uh, not just the wisdom, but also the applica- applicability of it in today's context. So it's a welcome transition, so that we actually embrace our own culture and the knowledge that's there here, right? So, so I'm curious. Uh, uh, what is your biggest takeaway from the Yoga Sutras?
1: Oh, that's a that's a simply beautiful question. Um, uh, you know, okay our uh, our insignificance is 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 something that really gets me our individual insignificance in the grand scheme of things is 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 humbling to the max right uh, in terms of uh, how we are just one atom atom in the in the overall scheme of things how we are in a moment of time, which is less than a grain of time, so to say, right? Uh, so, first of all, it really brings you down to earth. It's beautiful, that, you know, we are part of a larger purpose, uh, uh, things like that. So it's, it's a collection of things, sure. it's one specific thing. But yes, overall, our, our fundamental insignificance really gets, gets, gets you. You are, you know, you are just, just there for a larger purpose. Hopefully in the next 2 billion, <laughs> you know, um, the lifetimes, I'll get to where I need to get. That itself is, 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 is good. So I think all this business that I will get moksha in this this janma and, you know, I will, I will receive. Again, those are again to some extent with due respect to all uh, uh, an egotistical statement. To imagine that I'm somehow so spiritually advanced. I'm on a fast track of some kind. <laughs> you know, I'm on a fast track to, uh, to Nirvana or Uksha. I think that is highly misleading. I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I think I'm, uh, so yeah, so I hope I, get, I hope I can make my point.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was very beautiful. And um, I think in today's day where we deny so many of our negative things and go into a whole toxic positivity thing. I think uh, our conversation was such a refreshing change. I really appreciate the many, <laughs> you know, profound things that you put out so beautifully and, you know, to authentically admit where we are and how we keep going forward and keep coming back. And that is the journey. So uh it was really, really refreshing. So thank you so much for that. I'm definitely going to link your book. Uh, it is Yoga Sutra Simplified. Thank for those you. of you who are interested to read it, we'll link it in the descriptions wherever you're listening in so that you can actually grab a copy. But thank you so much, Shwasadev. I think this was very, very uh, beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and valuable inputs. Thank you,
1: Shweta. A lot of fun we, we made a few days ago i enjoyed that uh, coffee as well and of course right now i appreciate the preparation you have done and the nice questions and the warmth that you've actually displayed so thank you thank you very much for inviting me to your wonderful show
0: thank you